I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill host special guest Meredith Broadbent to discuss UK-US bilateral trade. They also talk about the recent WTO 232 decision and discuss this week's US-Africa Leadership Summit. All that and more on this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Great to see you this week. We have a special guest, which uh, happens to be another former Shoal Chair of International Business here at CSIS, Meredith Broadbent. She was the former chair of the U.S. International Trade Commission, also Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Industry at USTR. And she also has an otherwise illustrious career around town in trade. So some of my favorite people in the trade world all in one spot. So this will be a great episode today. Let's kick off with a topic that, Meredith, I know you've been following very closely and you have a forthcoming report on the subject, which is UK-US bilateral trade. The UK has been engaged in this policy where they've been signing MOUs with individual states. These are not legally binding. So what significance do they carry and what can we glean about the overall UK trade strategy? Thanks, Emily. It's great to be here. And I think it's an interesting development. We're looking right now, we've got a report coming out on the benefits of potentially negotiating a trade agreement with the UK for the United States. And I think it shakes out to be a pretty sensible, common sense way to proceed, given a lot of the other far-reaching economic trade objectives the, the administration has right now. We think it makes sense to probably tie down the bilateral relationship with the UK based on really our NAFTA agreement. We have a good consensus here about what we need in a state-of-the-art agreement, and we might as well take advantage of all the work that the administration and Congress did on USMCA to see if we can do something similar with the UK. And we picked out four or five sectors there where we think it's really going to be beneficial for US industry. But that being said, there's not a lot of real enthusiasm in the administration that we can identify right now for moving forward with the UK. There's been some in Congress, but really a lot of silence in the administration about whether we should move forward with the UK. So we're hoping that in the new Congress, with potentially some Republican control in the House, that they'll look at it again and take a fresh look at whether there would be some benefits and some common sense reasons for going forward and getting it done with the UK. But to get to your question on this MOU strategy that the UK has adopted, I think it's it's fascinating to me in the sense that I don't think any other government has really ever done this with the U.S. states. They have gone to several U.S. states, Indiana, North Carolina, South Carolina. And now we're just hearing that conversations are going on between the, the U.K. Uh, deputy trade minister and the state of California, which to me is really very interesting. The uh, lieutenant governor is in charge there. Her name is Eleni Kulinakis, and she is head of the Economic Development Commission of California. She's a former ambassador to Hungary and has an international perspective on things, I believe, looking at her background. So the fact that the UK may be negotiating an MOU with you know the fourth largest economy in the world, which is the state of California, I think it's about $3.7 billion of GDP there in California, 
means that there's economic interest in the country at large for moving forward with the UK. And as we know in Washington, sometimes that's what it takes, you know, some interest, some noise, some enthusiasm outside of the Beltway to get politicians in, inside the Beltway to look at these things. The UK has successfully concluded MOUs with North Carolina, South Carolina, and Indiana at this point. And looking over these agreements, they're not binding as a matter of federal or, or state law, but they're very indicative of what the interests are out there and the partnerships that these state officials envision could be productive for both sides. And, and you know, it talks about aviation, avionics, uh, life sciences, different types of green energy, technological development, envisioning a lot of private partnerships between collaborating very sophisticated technological leaders on both sides of the Atlantic between the U.S. and the U.K. So there's a lot of just support for the concept of moving forward with the U.K. out there, and it seems to be growing. And the U.K. should be applauded for taking this initiative to, to really reach out beyond Washington and begin these conversations. Well, Meredith, I'm I'm really I'm really excited by this because it shows real creativity in the space. The mood in Washington when it comes to trade is uh, pretty grumpy right at the moment, and the administration is not ready to be pinned down to much of anything. They don't want negotiating authority. So we talk frequently about whether there's ever going to be a really positive agenda, a market access agenda. But here you have a very important trading and investment partner like the UK deciding to not let that get in the way. They're going to do something. They're going to keep their country in the news. They're going to have announcements. They're going, and the announcements are all positive. I'm now a resident of the state of North Carolina. So I read through the North Carolina MOU. Meredith, you're absolutely right. This thing commits no one to anything. Okay, You may cooperate on these kind of things. You may coordinate. You may work together. And then it basically says none of this is legally binding and you can walk away anytime you like. So it's less binding than, ex than an extended warranty on your car. <laughs> and, but but it, it does a, a couple of things. One is it, it reminds people that the UK is interested in deepening their relationship with the United States. For me, it reflects the fact that they understand us pretty well. They know that if you can't move forward in Washington, there are the states are sovereign entities. The states have authority over a lot of what passes for uh, commercial activity in the United States. And uh, why not go make some friends? So I'm actually encouraged to see this. The Brits know us pretty well. And we work together on a lot of issues when you look at the commercial ties in terms of investment. We have about 25% of Britain's total foreign direct investment stocks in the U.S. They're a $2 trillion investor globally. And about a quarter of those stocks are in the U.S. They are our largest foreign investor. The U.K. is our largest outbound destination for investment. So the roots are deep and they're using those. And so and they're just not letting they're not letting Washington politics get in the way, which I, I applaud them for. Well, I, I agree all with with that. It's it's clever of the British to figure this out. Uh, it's also a reminder of yet another missed opportunity by the administration. True. They're doing this because we don't want to pursue a free trade agreement with them. And this highlights our failure to seize the initiative. I would put a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement in the in the low-hanging fruit category, although I think when our paper comes out, the one that Meredith is just finishing up now, 
you'll see that it's more complicated than you might think. Despite the fact that we are close and have been close allies for a very long time, when it comes to economic interests, there are divergences, and inevitably agriculture being a main one. There will be unhappy British farmers if we had enough TA, and there will be probably unhappy American farmers at the same time. So it, it's not like you can snap your fingers and we'll have a, we'd have an FTA. But it's, you know, if you can't do one with the UK, uh, who can you do one with? So I'm, I, it's depressing that we're missing the opportunity to move these things forward. As, as Senator Cantwell said in a hearing earlier this year, you know, USTR ought to be able to, to uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, and at the same time, they're pursuing their priorities on worker rights and labor and the environment. We ought to be pursuing the economic growth and jobs priority as well. Meredith, can we go back to one thing you said earlier, which is that certain sectors seem riper in some ways for deeper cooperation? I'm wondering if there are a couple of sectors that you've identified as particularly fruitful for these MOUs or for greater cooperation between the UK and US. Yeah, but thank you. I mean, I think the point here with the UK is that they have such robust labor and environmental standards that you are not going to have any of the race to the bottom arbitrage that some members of Congress worry about. So that issue against this agreement, if we did a trade agreement, is kind of taken off the table. And in terms of where the opportunities are, it's really very sophisticated, high-tech uh, manufacturing and life sciences and pharmaceuticals and so forth, where we already have a lot of deep partnerships between the U.S. and the U.K., a lot of vac co-production on vaccine during COVID is an example, where we, were, we set up kind of parallel manufacturing chains in each country and supported each other's in terms of availability of different pharmaceuticals and vaccines. So in our paper, we looked at pharmaceuticals, we looked at other medical products, chemicals, financial services. The digital space is very important for the U.S. economy and something that we do need to tie these disciplines, tie down disciplines on data flows and fair treatment for our tech companies. So there is an awful lot of opportunity. You see that identified in these MOUs. The other interesting thing I thought as I looked through these MOUs was the high visibility that they gave to economic, uh, not economic, but green energy issues and technological innovation in climate change technologies and so forth. And I think as a trading partner, the UK is going to push us very hard on improving the environment through trade agreements. So that should make this really a bipartisan package and something that should be attractive to the administration. I think particularly when they get mired down with the Europeans and some of these issues, if we could work with the UK first, it may pave the way to making some more progress with the Europeans. Well, let's move on now to something that made a lot of news. And I will just forewarn the listeners that Bill has promised us an epic rant on this one. And that is the WTO ruling on the 232 tariffs. So Bill, do you want to take a first stab at that one? Yes, I'm sorry. It is a rant. And it was a subject of my column this week for those of you that read it. I was really distressed. I wasn't distressed at the ruling. Uh, it was expected because it was parallel to a ruling in, in a Russia-Ukraine case back before the annexation of Crimea. Uh, you know, we lost. The uh, WTO concluded that we had violated the provisions of uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs that were put in for national security reasons, violated WTO rules. And basically, they concluded that uh, the national security exemption in Article 21 uh, shouldn't apply in this case. 
I think most economists and observers would say that was probably the right opinion on this particular case. And, and I say that as someone who has supported the steel industry and has supported import relief for the steel industry since the 1970s. I go back a long way on steel. But this particular case, President Trump, I think, used the wrong statute to get where he wanted and in the, in the process perverted the statute. And now we are in the process of perverting WTO rules. What really irritated me was, I mean, it was not the ruling, but the USGR response to it. It, which was a defiant, nobody can tell us what to do response and said for 70 years, the United States has maintained that the WTO can't second guess countries on their national security exemptions. I actually looked into that with the help of, of, of an expert who I think wants to remain anonymous for the time being. But and that's correct, correct. Uh, but, but 73 years ago, the U.S. actually had a different position in a case that came in 1949. And we subsequently ad adopted the position that USTR has maintained. But you ought to have seen this coming because it was exactly the same position that Russia maintained in the Ukraine case. Which was basically that countries get to define their own national security and the WTO doesn't get to second guess that. And in the Russia case, the panel rejected that argument. Uh, ironically, in that case, they went on to argue that notwithstanding rejecting the argument, that the actions that Russia took did fit within Article 21. And so that Russia actually won the case, even though they lost the, their main argument. In this case, the United States lost the argument and lost the case. But worse than that, the USTR could have simply said, we respectfully disagree, end of story. Instead, they launched this sort of attack on the WTO and said, we don't have to pay any attention to what they're, what they're saying, which is a major step into undermining the institution. And I'm, I get very upset at these things because I, I'm an institutionalist. We, ha we have rules and rules keep everything peaceful. They keep countries operating peacefully together. And if you don't have rules, then you have the law of the jungle. And, you know, you end up with Putin, basically. And we're doing the same thing without the violence and without the, the missiles and the tanks. We're saying rules don't matter. Institutions don't matter. We're going to do what we want. And it's, it's not good for us. We benefited from the rules over the last 70 years. It's not good for the system. It's not, and it's not good for others. And it's distressing also because of where it's coming from. In the past, this was an argument that came usually from the right wing in Congress. It was a sovereignty argument. You know, nobody should push the U.S. around. Nobody should tell the U.S. what to do, which really, if you think about it, is an argument against all treaties and all international entanglements. Because when you sign a treaty or when you sign a trade agreement, you give up some sovereignty. That's the point. You give up some sovereignty because the other guys give up some sovereignty as well. You move on in a more orderly world. Now, the same arguments being made by the left. You know, we don't want our hands tied. We want to be able to do whatever we want. Incredibly destructive argument that I think undermines institutions, undermines rule of law, and actually is going to undermine the U.S. position globally. The Chinese just finished attacking us shamelessly in, in the WTO because it was it was our turn for a review of our trade policy the last couple of days. Every country gets reviewed. Big countries get reviewed more often. So in our case, it's every couple of years. And it was our turn. And basically, the Chinese accused us of being the world's biggest rule breaker and uh, capriciously uh, ruining the system. It's sort of the pot calling the kettle black when the Chinese talk about breaking the rules. But at the same time, on this point, they're right. You know, we are breaking the rules. Uh, and it's going to be increasingly difficult for us to hold other countries accountable when they do exactly the same thing. End of rant. Sorry, I'm upset about it. No, I, look, I think, I think you have every right to be upset, Bill. And I'm, I'm concerned myself. This is 
the institutional argument is well made by you. Uh, this just looks like a gigantic unforced error. They didn't have to do this. I mean, let's let's remember how we got there. This is Section 232 of, of a trade bill that passed in 1962. And as candidate Donald Trump promised, President Donald Trump revived the statute and nobody in Congress stopped him. Still haven't done anything to repeal or modify the statute or amend it. But he used the authority in a, in a way that was un, probably unforeseen. And a lot of people criticized at the time, including prominent Democrats like former Vice President Joe Biden, former Senator Joe Biden, who was heavily criticized for it. So politically, you could have blamed this on the tariff man. But for me, the, the entire GATT project, the post-World War II multilateral system was all based on the idea of an open rules-based system, which means mutually agreed rules, mutually enforced. And if you're going to agree to rules and then not keep them when you don't want to, you're undermining the system, as Bill says. But for us, this was a peace project that was supported on a bipartisan basis that really worked over the years. And many prior administrations worked very hard to be Caesar's wife when it came to making sure we were above board as best as politics allowed uh, in these situations so that that system of mutually agreed, mutually enforced rules would hold together. You know, if I'm in, say, a New Zealand or a Canada or a, a U.S. ally who who's sort of a middle power that, uh, that relies on these rules, but to a much, much greater extent, but much more open to trade in the United States and, and I rely on the rules, I've been looking at this and saying, well, Gad, it's been nice to know you. This, this, this system is not going to hold up because the primary creator and advocate for it for decades is abandoning it. And so I don't see why they didn't just express disappointment in the loss and then just move on or, or, or even blame it on the prior administration. Uh, so it's just I don't know how to find anything positive about this. Uh, maybe our, our, some of our listeners will tell me I'm really wrong and there's some good things, but I don't see them. So somebody this week in the Twitterverse said that we should start referring to the WTO like we do the League of Nations. Are we there yet? Where do we go from here? Maybe we are, maybe we aren't, but we're pushing it over the cliff with stuff like this. We're not trying to fix it. This is sabotage. If the administration's position is the WTO deserves to be to have respect as an international institution, I can't think of a of a worse way to act as as a member. It's not the League of Nations yet. We've said previously on, on this podcast that I thought the Ministerial Conference 12 actually accomplished some things. It didn't accomplish everything, but it was it, it, it made some important progress. But if you want to rebuild it, bring it back to peak strength, you begin that by respecting its rules the way it is now. And you not respect the rules, you honor them and you implement them. Scott's exactly right. The word really here is sabotage. I think it's going to be very hard for us to go back to Geneva now and say we want to resurrect the uh, dispute resolution process with a straight face when we're thumbing our nose at it and when specific cases. You know, what's distressing about it, too, is it's not just this. We're going to lose the next one, which is on the China tariffs. That's not a national security case. I think we'll, but we're going to lose it. We're also going to lose the Mexican case. I think we already lost it. It just isn't public yet, which was a case uh, in, involving the USMCA dispute settlement process, which is argument over how to interpret the auto rules where the Canadians and Mexicans claimed it was negotiated one way and then Ambassador Lighthizer unilaterally decided to interpret it another way after the fact. I think we're going to lose that one. There's a pattern here, and the U.S. response ought to be, uh, let's try to find a way to comply and let's respect the rules, but we don't seem to be going down that road. 
Well, let's turn now to something a little closer to home, which has happened in D.C. this week. The first major U.S.-Africa summit since the Obama administration. It's produced notoriously bad traffic around town, as I'm sure many of our listeners have also experienced. But it has also produced some concrete results. What's been going on this week? Well, I'm surprised we haven't had any sirens blaring during the podcast. I'm doing this from from the office. And Emily is right. It's snarled traffic. And I was out going somewhere last evening, and it was just one siren after another. And I discovered that apparently for African leaders, the uh, the limo of choice is a Cadillac, a black Cadillac SUV with tinted windows. They are everywhere. And that seems to be what they're all driving these days. So, and I don't know why that is. And this is not a commercial for Cadillac. I don't own one, but I just was intrigued. Anyway, it appears there were some accomplishments. They had something like 40 heads of state and nearly 50 governments represented. And out of, I think, 53, that's pretty good. There were $15 billion worth of agreements commercial agreements that were signed, deals made that were signed while they were here involving 47 different countries. And one interesting one was with Cisco Systems for um, partnering with diaspora, African diaspora and small business for $800 million in new contracts to protect African countries from cyber threats. And, you know, cyber activity is growing very rapidly in, in Africa. It's kind of a generation skipping thing. Everybody's got a phone and they're proceeding rather rapidly in, in some countries to a cashless economy. Everybody's paying on their phone. That makes cyber hacking, cybersecurity a really big issue in Africa. And Cisco is now going to be part of a major project to deal with that. In addition, there was an interesting deal struck uh, with uh, Microsoft uh, to bring internet access to 5 million additional Africans, with the ultimate aim on the part of Microsoft to bring access to 100 million people across the continent by the end of 2025, which is pretty soon. And Cisco is also working with the administration to train 3 million more technology workers in Africa over the next 10 years. The U.S. on outside of trade announced that it wants, well, they want the African Union to join the G20 as a permanent member, and they want an African country to hold a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. So I think there's a number of major efforts here by the Biden administration to demonstrate that it cares about Africa after four years of neglect by the Trump administration, I think eight years ago. So it's been a while. There was not much talk of free trade agreements. In fact, there was no talk of free trade agreements. And it appears that's not, we're not going to be pursuing the one with Kenya. But Ambassador Tai did sign an MOU with the head of the African Union to promote further cooperation between us and them. And the conference yielded a quite enthusiastic endorsement uh, of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, uh, which is in the process of implementation and involves, as I recall, all but one of the African countries. And for those of you that have studied Africa know that the uh, a lot of the problems there are simply regional borders and, and regional uh, lack of regional trade. There's a lot of Europe-African trade in, in both directions, and there's a lot of trade in, in raw materials, but there's not as much commerce back and forth across borders as you would think. And the African CFTA, AFCFTA, is designed to break down a lot of those barriers to promote a lot of international, interregional trade. The potential for that is enormous. And to have the U.S. endorse that and, and promote that and, and lend our help in doing it is, I think, an important just uh, step forward. 
So I think it was useful. I'm sure you're going to find African leaders who wanted more, but it was an important step. I hope now that it won't just be forgotten by the administration until we do the next one of these several years from now, but that all these promises to work on cooperation and future deals uh, will actually translate into jobs and growth on the ground here and there. Well, I'm encouraged that the summit came off with deliverables, which is great, unusual, and and excellent. But I also think this outlines where the U.S. needs to go when it's time to reauthorize the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, which is AGOA. AGOA has been a disappointment because partly it's focused on almost entirely on goods. And goods trade is always going to be small between the U.S. and Africa, mostly because U.S. exports are by and large substitutable with European exports, machine tools, chemicals, high technology products. And Europe both got there first and is closer and has a set of partnership agreements that we are unlikely to change materially in terms of our share of of any particular import. But there is something that is a winning hand for Africa and the United States, and it's mineral exports from Africa and it's services exports from the U.S., services and investment. Because we are, we are a big investor. We have, the, as you saw with the Cisco and Microsoft announcements, there are, there are services exports that would be massively beneficial to, to Africa. And they have developed material like, uh, extraction projects, which we need for the green technology advancements. And we don't want to buy from the other customer, China. That is where I'd go if I were looking for a way to frame AGOA in a very constructive and positive way. Bill's right. The intra-Africa trade flows deserve the focus. That's where the, the important barriers exist. I'd eliminate those barriers all before I'd start working on trade agreements with, with the U.S. or really any external partner, any, any non-continental partner, I should say. Uh, but in the meantime, there's a lot can be done. Africa is the home of the world's young people. They have the youngest population of any place on the planet. And getting those young people using American technology and solving their problems and advancing, increasing, improving their living standards would be a great thing. Uh, there's no reason that what happened in East Asia over the past 30 years couldn't happen in Africa over the next 30 years in terms of of human human uh, development, so I, I think there's a program there that this that this event at least sketches the outlines of. As I recall, I'm I'm told by one of our Africa experts here at CSIS, the average age um, in Africa is 19. Mm-hmm. In Germany, it's 49. In the United States, I think it's in the 40s, but not as high as 49. Africa really is the continent of the future. The cynics say it's it's been the continent of the future for the last 30 years, and there's something uh, to that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that you know one of the real obstacles to further investment in Africa, Western investment. In Africa uh, is corruption, which is a big problem in Africa. It's not the only place it's a problem, but it's one place where it's a big problem. And until African governments can get more of a handle on that, I think you're going to see a lot of Western companies uh, nervous about, about investing there. Um, I'd also say the United States did not entirely miss the opportunity to think about itself in these meetings. The president didn't meet with every, didn't meet individually with every head of state. He met with one group, uh, mostly groups that had have, have had problems with elections and actually civil wars in the past to encourage them to move forward to have free elections. 
But I think he also ended up meeting, among others, with the heads of Zambia and, and the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, both of which are major producers of minerals that are going to be important. Zambia is, I think, the sixth largest producer of copper, uh, and uh, the Congo produces 70% of the world's cobalt, which is a key ingredient in batteries. And both of those are key ingredients. The United States didn't miss the opportunity to try to cement relations with countries that I think we're going to need going forward to meet some of our own uh, supply chain resilience goals. Well, I was going to say this can't be an episode of The Trade Guys if we don't briefly talk about the EV tax credit. <laughs> so There you are. I snuck it in. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Bill. Uh, we've heard a lot of backlash from Europeans, other close allies like the Koreans about various provisions of the IRA. How has Africa responded? Uh, do they stand to gain from this if the United States continues to pursue these MOUs for critical minerals? I don't think there's been much response publicly or politically. There's not a big automobile industry in, in Africa. I think there's some manufacturing in South Africa, but it's nobody's really spoken out about, uh, about the law. To the extent that there's going to be a significantly increased demand for minerals that go into battery production, which include minerals that are mined in, in Africa, not the only place they're mined, but include minerals there, you may see something of a, of a boom in, in Africa, or at least a lot more interest. Of course, from the African standpoint, I don't think that's entirely what they're looking for. They don't want really economies that are based on exploitation of raw materials. That's sort of a, you know, that's what the colonialists did. I think Africa would like, to, the African nations would like to develop a more modern economy. They'd like to see more manufacturing. They'd like to move up the value added chain and not just be uh, an extraction economy. And so, you know, while I'm sure they're going to welcome more opportunities, I think they're going to try to figure out a way to move up the value added chain and, and maybe even if it's just processing of these minerals, in addition to extraction uh, or even some of the manufacturing part of the process is what they're going to be looking for. Uh, we'll see if it, uh, investment goes in that direction. Well, that's where American technology and American know-how can help a lot. So. Well, thank you all for a very lively episode. It's been a pleasure having three shoulder chairs, two former, one current. And just a reminder that we will take a brief hiatus the next two weeks. Even the trade guys take breaks and celebrate the holidays. So we will be back in the new year and we look forward to, to checking in then. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.